You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Good morning. Well, um, if you're visiting with us today, we welcome you to South Bay Church. Uh, as Brian said, if you wore your goody two-shoes, we ask you to leave those at the door. We don't wear goody two-shoes here. And I appreciate Esteban, right, in his, in his communion, reminding us. Good job, Esteban. What an amazing communion reminder that we, none of us have goody two-shoes before Jesus, right? And uh, I appreciate him. What a gift from Turning Point he is. Thank you, Turning Point, for sending him our way. Uh, but if you are visiting with us today, please do stop by our guest services booth right outside of the auditorium. We have a, a table set up there, and we have a gift for you if you're a first-time guest. So please be sure to stop by. We'll tell you more about us. We'd love to learn more about you. And uh, today we're continuing our sermon series that we've entitled The Eye of the Storm, Lessons from the Life of Daniel. And over the last several weeks, we've been doing a deep dive into the life and times of this, this Old Testament prophet, uh, Daniel. And Daniel lived between roughly 630 years before Christ and about 500, excuse me, 605 years before Christ and 530 years uh, before Christ. So that was about the era he lived in. It was during the period of time when the, the Israel was actually in exile in Babylon. And Daniel's life is truly inspiring. I mean, we can certainly draw just so many lessons from his life as we've been seeing in these sermons. Even as a young teen, Daniel had the faith to stay true to his convictions uh, while living in this foreign culture, uh, while serving in the court of this, this king who believed in many gods, a polytheistic king. And, and in fact, Daniel's faith was, faith was so strong that you know, he was willing to die before he would bow down to the king's idols, as Dustin talked about last week. And Daniel had a lot of challenges for standing up for his convictions, all the way from a, from a blazing furnace to a lion's den. But God was always with him there at the eye of the storm. And as inspiring as Daniel's life is, um, parts of the book of Daniel, I'll just be up front, they're rather puzzling to me. <laughs> if you've read the book of Daniel, it seems to kind of veer off into these visions and prophecies that can be difficult to understand. Uh, until you get a good grasp of the history during that period of time. And Dr. John Oakes recently spoke to us, and, and his sermon gave us appreciation for some of that history. Daniel predicted down to the finest detail what would happen after his life and what would happen to the kingdoms that would come after him and after this kingdom he served. And what makes the, the, the book of Daniel even more amazing and encouraging is that he spoke about an eternal kingdom that we're part of today. So... But it is a different, it's an interesting book, and, and I'll just tell you right up front, preaching from the book of Daniel is no easy task. <laughs> and when it comes to my preaching, I, I've come to, I've said this before, but I really believe God has a sense of humor with me when it comes to my preaching. Uh, preaching on this complex book reminds me, I was thinking of an analogy, and it reminds me of my dad teaching me to swim when I was about five years old. And I went into the archives trying to find a picture of when I was five, and the only one I could find is this one. Yeah, that was me on, on the, it would be your left. And so, um, you know, that was me. And, you know, my dad taught me to swim by, his method was you pull the kid out deep into the lake and you say sink or swim. That was swimming lessons. And so sinking didn't seem like a palatable option. And so what did I do? I swam. And fortunately, you can tell I was kind of a chunky, I was kind of a chunky kid. So 
my buoyancy helped me a good deal uh, in learning to swim. But I feel like God is pulling me into the deep waters with this particular book of Daniel. And I think it's his way of saying, hey, Mark, you need to understand Daniel better. After all, your full name is Mark Daniel Steberg. You're named after the prophet. So why don't you get in front of a couple hundred people and just share your thoughts on a couple of the more bizarre books or chapters in Daniel? So it's sink or swim, maybe, and I hope, I hope you guys won't let me sink today. So I'll be expounding on Daniel's, uh, four, Daniel chapters 4 and 5, which highlight really two kind of strange events with two different kings. And what I'm going to do is, the approach I'm going to take with this sermon is I'm going to take a few minutes on the front end and summarize the chapters very briefly, just so we're on the same page. And you can actually follow along on the South Bay Church app. If you have that app downloaded, if not, you can download it from iTunes. But on the app, there's a notes section. Click on notes and you'll be able to see our, our, uh, our notes out there, our outline for this sermon. And so my intro may seem a little longer today as I summarize the books, but I promise you we will end on time and I'll be brief and point when we get to the application. Let's go ahead and pray as we get started. God, I just thank you so much for your word. Thank you for uh, books like Daniel, God, books that just show us how amazing your prophecy is and how uh, you spoke through people like Daniel and told us what was going to come in the days that followed him and just such incredible faith building to hear about the kingdom that you spoke of, God, to learn lessons from the life of these, these men who lived so long ago that, that are still so applicable to us today. So I just pray that you speak to us today, that your spirit would speak to us, that it would, it would encourage us and that we would come away uh, strengthened, we'd come away encouraged uh, and ready to, to go forth and make some decisions from this message, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So in chapter four, of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he has this dream. And if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about Daniel chapter 2, where he had a dream about a statue. And in chapter 4, we learned about another dream that Daniel had, which he dreams about this enormous tree. And this tree was so huge that it grew to touch the sky. And in scripture, a tree often represents either a man or a nation. And so the tree here was so huge and it was so majestic, it could be seen from the ends of the earth. And the tree provided food and shelter for, for, the, for the creatures of the earth. And in this dream, an angelic messenger comes down from heaven and announces that the tree was to be cut down. But the stumps and the roots were to be left in place and bound with shackles of iron and bronze. So Nebuchadnezzar, understandably so, was terrified by this dream. And so he summons Daniel to interpret the dream for him as he had done before. And Daniel explained that the tree represented Nebuchadnezzar and his powerful kingdom. And that kingdom covered most of the known world at that time. Huge, enormous, powerful kingdom. And what, what the dream meant was that Nebuchadnezzar would be cut down like the tree. He would be removed from his throne and his stump would remain. And that meant that he would eventually return to power uh, after he had been bound in shackles. And Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar would go temporary, temporarily insane, and he would become like a wild animal, eating grass and, and being drenched with the dew of heaven. But once Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that God was sovereign over the earth, his sanity and his kingdom were restored to him. So Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to change his sinful ways. Uh, uh, but God actually gave Nebuchadnezzar another year to repent, and he didn't. If you pick it up in Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 29, it says 12 months later, that's 12 months after he had this dream, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, 
is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence and by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. So just as Nebuchadnezzar was kind of proclaiming how amazing he was and how awesome his kingdom was, this voice pronounces judgment on him for his pride and his arrogance. So it's like one minute he's like, I'm so amazing, I'm so awesome. And the next minute he's like, <laughs> I love this picture, this depiction. He's like in the field with the oxes. He's got hairy arms, just like an ox. Green teeth, yeah. I told you it's a weird story. So. So after seven years of grazing in the field like an ox and being drenched with the dew of heaven, Nebuchadnezzar finally looked up to heaven and he acknowledged the sovereignty of the Almighty God. And in Daniel 4, verse 34, it says, at the end of that time, this is Nebuchadnezzar, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. So the king humbled himself before God and he regained his sanity and he was restored to power as Daniel said he would and he became even greater than he was before. And historically speaking, after Nebuchadnezzar died, there were a series of kings, but eventually his son Nabonidus becomes king. And basically Nabonidus spent the majority of his reign outside of Babylon. He was out on the, on the battlefield doing foreign expeditions, so he wasn't actually in the city of Babylon. However, his son, his son was a king, a kind of a co-regent with him named Belshazzar. And his son Belshazzar ruled as the co-regent. He was the representative of his father. So he was number two in the kingdom. And Belshazzar suffered from the same pride and arrogance that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had. So when we go to Daniel chapter five, we've now fast forwarded many years from chapter four to the time when Nabonidus and Belshazzar were in power. And here we find this strange account about Belshazzar. He throws this huge party for a thousand of his nobles. And everyone was drinking wine, they were getting drunk, and midway through the party, Belshazzar ordered that the gold and silver goblets from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem be taken out of storage. Remember, they had taken those away when the Jews were exiled, and Nebuchadnezzar was smart enough to put them in the storage unit, but Belshazzar's like, break those things out, we're gonna drink wine out of them. So even Nebuchadnezzar hadn't been that arrogant as to do that. But Belshazzar and his nobles proceeded to drink wine and they started praising the false gods, the gods of gold and silver and iron and bronze and wood and stone. And this was the ultimate disrespect yeah. to the holy God of Israel. Uh, to, to, and it was really kind of a direct challenge to his authority. So in the middle of all this carousing and idolatry, this mysterious hand appears and begins to write something on the wall. So just imagine this scene. This is a depiction from Rembrandt from the 17th century of what he thought this looked like. But King Belshazzar, he was about to wet his pants. He was so afraid. It says his knees were knocking together. Uh, it's like, remember Adam's family, the thing that pops out of the box and moves around? It's probably what it was like. Belshazzar was scared, but none of the wise men could interpret this, this weird writing on the wall. So the queen mother intervenes and tells Belshazzar about this forgotten old prophet named Daniel, retired, 
who during the time of his grandfather had been able to interpret difficult dreams and visions. So Belshazzar summons this old Daniel, who was, I, I believe he was just a crotchety old man by this point. And the king offered Daniel the third highest rank in the kingdom. So Nabonidus one, Belshazzar two, Daniel three, and all these royal gifts if he could interpret the writing. And Daniel says, keep your stupid gifts, Belshazzar, but I will interpret the writing anyway. And he, his crusty old Daniel proceeds to give Belshazzar the rebuke of his life. If you look in Daniel five, verse 22, it says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, even though you knew all this. He had seen everything that had happened to his grandfather. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, of gold, of bronze, and wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who, in, who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the, the hand that wrote the inscription, and this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And at that point, Daniel interpreted the writing on the wall, which was in Aramaic. And God wrote these three words, which when you translated them mean to number. That's Mene. Mene means to number. To weigh. Tekel means to weigh. And Parson or Perez, the plural of that, is to divide. So number, weigh, divide. And what God meant was that Belshazzar's days were numbered that he had been weighed on the scales of God and been found wanting on the scales, and that his kingdom would be taken away and divided between the Medes and the Persians. And not surprisingly, like all of his other visions, Daniel's interpretation was spot on, because that very night, Belshazzar was assassinated and his kingdom was divided between the Medes and the Persians. So as I was studying and meditating on these two chapters of Daniel, I realized that God provides a complete sermon in those three words that he wrote on the wall. 2,500 year, years later, those words are just as applicable to us as they were in the day of Belshazzar. And so, you know, as we shift to the application here, we're going to talk about mene to number, tekel to weigh, and perez to divide. And we're just going to start by diving into mene. And again, God told Belshazzar that his days were numbered. And I think it's very important for us to remember that our days are numbered as well. And we can often be reminded, seems like lately more and more so I'm reminded that our days are short. And shortly, and just an example of that, I mean, shortly before I left the corporate world in 2015 and went into the full-time ministry, everybody at my company was shocked to learn about the death of our company's chairman, a guy named Jim Rothenberg, at age 69. So not that old. And, and you know, he was a legend in the investment management industry, yet it doesn't matter how much wealth or how much philanthropy you do or how much prestige you accumulate, you cannot buy more time. And then there are just so many popular entertainers out there that have died young. I just reflected on some of them. I pulled up a few pictures. You know, people like Chris Farley, one of my favorites, Elvis, John Belushi, Bruce Lee, John Lennon, Jim Morrison, Prince, Michael Jackson, the list goes on and on. No matter how talented or how famous you are, your days are still numbered. And by now, most of you have heard about uh, Jesse Esports Jr. He was a baseball teammate of our own Julian Huerta. Uh, he was a neighbor, lived in the neighborhood of the Sujimotos. And on March 7th, he was broadsided with his dad, um, broadsided by a speeding car, and he was killed uh, by the impact. So no matter how young and how innocent you are, no matter how promising your future may seem, 
your days are still numbered. And certainly, you know, recently we've had to mourn the deaths of, of our dear brothers. You know, Scott Hachia was close to so many of us, uh, and more recently, Kevin Maines. And again, just a reminder that even the most righteous of men, and these were righteous, holy men, yeah. disciples of Jesus, he even numbers the days of all of us. And, you know, when I was a younger man, the idea, the di- <laughs> I guess the idea of my death just seemed so remote. You know, I, I, my mortality just wasn't something that I thought of. I think generally younger people don't think about death that often. But, but as the years go by and as my hairline continues to retreat rapidly, <laughs> I hear about these men dying at my age or even younger. And, and so I'm just more aware of how fragile life is. And God wants us to have the right perspective on time, doesn't he? In Psalm 90, the psalmist writes, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And wisdom comes from having the correct perspective on time. But the psalmist says God has to teach us. God teaches us to have the right perspective on time. The right perspective on time comes from him. In Matthew 6, Jesus even reminds us to have the right perspective on time. And he asks a very pointed question. He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? There's nothing you can do to extend your lifespan beyond what God has ordained for you. Our days are numbered. So have you come to grips with that? Do you have the perspective on time that God wants you to have? Do you ever make plans for your time without consulting God first? I know I do. I think and kind of the point here is the view, your, your view of time is demonstrated by how you spend your time. Your view of time is demonstrated by how you spend your time. And, you know, in terms of making plans, you can just ask my wife, Mia. I am notorious. I am just a restless soul. I'm always thinking about, okay, where could we move to? What could we be doing? What kind of job could I get? You know, you know what could God do? What could we do here? What could we do there? And I'm not really putting those plans before God. I'm just random, randomly thinking that I'll blurt it out to my wife, and it just stresses her out. She's like, is he serious about this? But a scripture that always grounds me is in James 4. It says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And so your time really isn't your time, you see. <laughs> It's God's time. So, so making plans for, plans for your time without consulting God is arrogant and it's evil. So do you live like your time belongs to God? Do you live that way? And you can answer that question by considering another question. Is your schedule more filled with worldly activities or is it more filled with kingdom endeavors? You know, we have a lot of families here at South Bay Church, so I'm just going to say something here very direct about sports and kids' activities. Because we're in the middle of it. We're with you. They're good. Sports and extracurricular activities are good for our kids. It's good for them to be well-rounded. It's good for them to learn how to play on a team. But Mia and I are noticing that Sunday mornings are not sacred anymore. (laughs) Sunday is viewed by many out there as just another day. And, And if you're not careful, you can fall into the habit of missing church often because of your kids' activities. 
And we've been up front with our coaches. It's not that occasionally we haven't missed for a kids' activity, but, but we try to be right up front with our coaches that Sunday mornings are off limits. And we've had to say no to some of our kids' activities because of that. But parents, what are you teaching your kids when you habitually miss church so your kids can go to their game or their activity, whatever they're involved in? I mean, what are you teaching them? Shouldn't it be the other way around? I mean, shouldn't you be missing some of your other, you know, extracurricular stuff so that you can come to church? Couldn't you teach your kid a little bit about the priority of God if you tell them to come to church first? Couldn't you say something to the people on the team and all the other parents that are watching you? How you spend your time says everything about your priorities. 1 Peter 3, he reminds us, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live, what? Holy and godly lives, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. What does holy and godly mean? It means you're set apart. It means you're different. It means you're not like everybody around you. That's what holy means. You aren't guaranteed tomorrow. And as Peter says, the end will come when you least expect it. So don't you want your life to count for something? Something just of, of monumental importance? A hundred years from now, will anyone remember that you were the part of a winning sports team? Or that your dance team was the number one team in California? Or that you made a lot of money and you were promoted to the top of a company? Trust me on that last one, your company won't remember you a month after you're gone. You are replaceable. Everybody is replaceable. So do you want your life to be remembered? Or do you want to have regrets about how you used your time? You know, some of the top regrets of the dying, we can learn a lot from people on their deathbeds. You know, and some of you see these. These are posted quite a bit on Facebook and so on. I see them. But Lifehack published some of the top regrets of people who are dying. And I think we can learn perspective about how God wants us to use our time. So the top regrets of the dying. I wish I wouldn't have compared myself to others. I wish I tuned out the world more. I wish I didn't wait to start it tomorrow. I wish I'd taken more chances. I wish I would have kept going. I wish I told others how much I love them. I wish I was content with what I had. I wish I'd listened to others more. I wish I'd have not have held that grudge. I wish I'd left work at work. And I wish I would have walked the walk. I don't believe that God wants you to live with eternal regrets. That's why he sent his son. You know, Jesus gives you a compelling invitation to join him as he changes the course of eternity. And Jesus gives you the opportunity to have your name engraved on that heavenly wall of fame, right below Jesus' name. You see, Jesus has a mission for your life. And if you don't know what your life mission is, if you're not sure what it is, I encourage you to please sit down. As Esteban said, sit down with us. We'll study the Bible and we'll show you through a personal Bible studies study series, you know, just how your life can have an eternal impact. 
And here's the great irony, folks. If you make your life all about you, which we're all tempted to do, if you make your life all about you, your life will likely be forgotten. But if you make your days about the Lord, about Jesus, your name will be eternal. Eternal. Jesus said if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for him, you'll save it. And Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way. You know, he spent seven years in a field like a wild animal. But eventually he acknowledged that everything he had, all the days that he had been given, everything came from God. And at the end of his life, I believe Nebuchadnezzar had a genuine faith in God. He went from being a polytheistic king to sharing with conviction about the most high God. So mene, number your days, use them wisely, have an eternal impact with the days that you have. That's the first point we can take from the writing on the wall. The second point that the, that the hand wrote was tekel, which means to weigh. God told Belshazzar that he had been weighed on the scale on the divine scale, so to speak, and the arrogant young king had come up short. God would execute his judgment against Belshazzar that very night. And the image of a scale is one that we, we see associated with justice quite often. It goes all the way back to ancient Egypt, actually, but today we see in our courtrooms, we see this statue of a woman holding a sword and a scale that represents justice. And the Bible tells us that God is all about justice. You know, in, in Psalm 11, it says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. So he judges fairly. He judges impartially. His verdicts are final. And one day we will all stand before God. And we will step onto that divine scale, so to speak, and you will be judged for how you lived. But unfortunately, we can sometimes have the wrong idea about God's scale and how it works whether you're not a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for decades. And I, I believe our modern thought today in Western society has been shaped by this idea, this philosophy of humanism, which basically means the human potential is unlimited and, and we think much more highly of ourselves than we should. And that idea has leached into our view of God. What I mean is that you may actually believe that you can get right with God through your own personal effort. You may believe that you can tilt God's scale in your favor by being good enough. You may actually think you're a good person, especially when you compare yourself to people around you. Have you ever believed that? Have you ever believed that by gaining God's favor, you can, you, you can do that just by being good enough, being righteous enough? That's the, that's the mindset of many religious people. You follow this set of rules, you follow this standard of morality, and you will garner favor with the divine being. You will tip the scales in your favor. And that was actually my view of God for the first 25 years of my life. You know, as I became a teen, I started making bad decisions. I, I lied to my parents. I, I, I was hateful. I was selfish. I, I started getting drunk when I was 15 years old. I was looking at pornography. I was sexually immoral for the first time when I was 15 years old. And deep down, I knew those things were wrong. But I misunderstood how God's scale works. Because I thought my good points would more than offset my bad points. <laughs> After all, I believed in God. If I looked at the good side of the ledger, I believed in God, believed in Jesus. I was a good student. I worked hard. I usually respected authority. 
and I wasn't an axe murderer. So, so I thought on the balance, hey, the good outweighs the bad. So I'm pretty good with God. But then I was 25 years old, and my future wife introduced me to a few good men, George Violante, John Roscoe, and Floyd Griffin, Amen. who offered to study the Bible with me. And I seriously doubted that this archaic book was going to have any impact on my life, any relevance to my life. But I, something inside of me was saying, Mark, you need to do this. So I did. And I went and I sat down and I started studying the Bible. And I'll tell you folks, the Bible rocked my world. It rocked my world because for the first time I saw in black and white, in God's word, what exactly God considers sin. My drunkenness was a sin. My sexual immorality, my impurity was a sin. My hatred was a sin. My selfishness was a sin. My lying was a sin. And I also saw there right in black and white in the Bible, in God's word, that there are serious consequences for my sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is what? Yeah. Is death. Wages are the payment for sin, and I deserve nothing but death for how I had lived my life. So by studying the Bible, I learned that I had this serious misunderstanding of God's divine scale. The few good points I had were never going <laughs> to even come close without weighing my sin. And the Bible says in Isaiah 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our, our sins sweep us away. So the Bible makes it obvious that no matter how good, no matter how good you think you are, you will never tilt the scales by your own effort. And if you read God's word and if you believe God's word, you will come to a place where you know that your only hope is for God to have mercy on you. You come to learn that you need a savior. And I came to that understanding 18 years ago and I decided to turn away from my sins and I was baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of my sins just as the Bible instructs you to do. And many of you here made the same decision that I made when you finally understood that you needed a savior. Many of you were baptized into Christ and, and you have remained faithful to your servant, our Savior, for you know, 20 years, 30 years, more in some cases. And you've loved people and you've done your best to hold to Jesus' teachings. And you've been committed to the meetings of the church. And you've served in countless ways. And you've been incredibly sacrificial in your giving. You've given locally to the local church, globally to plant churches all over the world. You've given to the poor. You've poured out your life as a disciple of Christ. But you know what I've observed? Is that as we Christians persevere in our faith over the decades, Satan can distort the divine scale in our mind. You may not even realize that an attitude of entitlement begins to set in. And you may not even realize that you're subtly taking pride in your religious efforts. And of course, you'd never say it out loud, but you may subtly say to God, you know, I've given you so much over the years, God. I've done my best for you. I've been righteous compared to the other people around me. So don't I really deserve your favor, God, after all I've done for you? Have you ever felt that way, mature Christians, in your heart? Be honest, I know I have. My heart's gone there at times. I somehow think that God owes me for living the life of a disciple. And in those moments, I've really lost touch with the fact that because of my sin, I deserve nothing from God but wrath. Nothing. 
And I appreciate my wife because she, she recently recognized an attitude of entitlement in her own heart. And she shared this with me and she said it was okay to share it. Because <laughs> I realized I had the same attitude she had, so I'm sharing it with her. But we have two boys and, and we've tried to raise them God's way. You know, we, we, we do the family devotionals. We have the quiet times with them every morning. We get advice on our parenting. The Marichis help us every week. Talk, talk us off the cliff. The, the Wingies have helped us. Many have helped us. You know, we, we've come to the youth ministry nights. We've come to the parenting workshops. We've read the parenting books. We know the boundaries. <laughs> but somehow Mia and I have both come to feel like we deserve. We deserve to have perfect kids because we've done all that. God, how could you dare give us kids that make bad decisions? After all we've done for you. You know, Satan's thrown us off in that area and he's given us a sense that God somehow owes us something. That's how he works. And the longer I'm a Christian, the more I've come to understand just how sinful my heart is and how much I need God's forgiveness. I continually remind myself that God owes me nothing. Nothing. Tekel, it's written on the wall. We will all be weighed on the divine scale, just as Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were. We will all come up short. And your sin has permanently tipped the scales against you. And all your good deeds are like filthy rags to God. You and I need a Savior. And that's the only hope when you step onto God's scale. And the last word, which we'll touch on quickly, is Perez. To divide. To Belshazzar, Perez meant that his kingdom would be, be literally taken from him and divided between the Medes and the Persians. But that said, God has given us something that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar never had. He's given us his son. Amen. And through Jesus, the word tekel, to divide, has an entirely new dimension. Jesus came to divide, tekel, but not in the sense of dividing a kingdom. Jesus came to earth with a message that divides. He said himself in Luke 12, he says, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Jesus's message is divisive and it's even offensive to many. He didn't just say, hey, we should just all coexist. There are many ways to God. Just pick your right way and what's best for you and run with it. That's not what he said. I hear that so often when I share my faith with people. But that's complete nonsense. Jesus claims that he is the only way to God. He draws a line in the sand and he asks unapologetically for your total commitment to his way. And you know what? That rubs many people the wrong way. His message is offensive to people who assume, who dangerously assume, that they are just fine with God <laughs> because of their own efforts or their own beliefs. And he took, you know, it's offensive to people, but, but at the same time, his message is beautiful <laughs> to those who know that their days are numbered, who know that they will never tip the scales in their favor. You know, Romans 26, 23 says, the wages of sin is death. The good news is that Jesus received the dreaded wages for your sin, and he took the horrible payment that you and I should have received. And it wasn't pretty. You know, he was flogged by the Romans. That it, it, it of itself caused death. And he was nailed to this cross and left hanging to suffocate for hours. And he died this horrible death as payment for your sin and my sin. 
And thanks to Jesus, that divine scale can be tipped in your favor for all of eternity. So because of Jesus, you have this division or fork in the road of your life. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, and this is where we'll end, he said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So Jesus puts a fork in the road of your life, and he says you can choose from two paths. And what he says here should alarm you, it should get your attention, because many, many people will choose the broad road that leads to destruction. Think about Belshazzar. He chose the broad road. He chose to party on, party on, Wayne, in denial of the wall, in denial of the writing on the wall, and he was destroyed and his kingdom was divided. But Jesus also said that a few, a few will choose the narrow road that leads to life. And as Nebuchadnezzar learned, the narrow road requires you to turn your eyes to heaven and to surrender. Surrender to the sovereign Lord of the universe. And surrendering to God means that you admit your way is wrong. Surrender means that you study the Bible with disciples, with Christians, who will help you apply it to your life. Surrender means that you learn and you accept what Jesus did for you. Surrender means that you turn away from your sins. Surrender means that you get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And all of that, all of that is just the beginning of the narrow road. <laughs> the entire Christian life is a life of surrender. That's what the narrow road is all about. But it's a joyful surrender. It's a joyful surrender in response to the incredible news about Jesus. My friends, the narrow road is the best possible life you could ever live here on earth. You can live your short days with great joy, with great joy and with great impact. And you can look forward to an eternal life, you know, where, where everything will be made new and there'll be no more crying or no more fear or no more pain. So Mene, Tekel, Perez, your days are numbered. You will be weighed. You will come up short. But Jesus and only Jesus can tip the divine scale back in your favor. Amen. And only Jesus can put a, a fork in the road of your life and send you on a new path. Right. A new path that leads to eternal life. So the question I leave you with is which road will you choose? And do you see the writing on the wall? Love you all. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.